Nice. Um, I've been in the office for 11 hours now, so it's uh Are you still in your office longer. right now? I st- I'm still in my office right now. At school? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's where I, that's where I do all these because my equipment's a lot better up here, and, and I got two kids at home. And yeah, as much as you tell them, shh, daddy's doing an interview. They don't <laughs> they don't give a shit about that. <laughs> when I interviewed Eric Wargo, there was a cat fight in the middle of this uh, show. Oh no, kid, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> you know the struggle. Yeah. <laughs> no, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not. Uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that, the, um, that, this, that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go condition here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? turn that down a little bit. Can you hear me, uh, Michael? Yeah, no, you're fine. Okay. We set this up, what, like, this has been uh, pushed back twice, I think, mostly because it's my fault, I think. <laughs> oh, just once. Okay. Just one time. Okay. <laughs> I found your, uh, actually, your CV better um, intro inside the book, but I will read the back cover, too, so people know what we're talking about, in addition to asking you about it. Um, I met Michael at the um, uh, UFO Congress, International UFO Congress, here in uh, September. Uh, September, yeah, early September. Yeah, it was like 118 degrees the whole time we were there. It was so hot. Oh, my God. (laughs) Nobody went outside. And if they did, it was just, you know, it was uh, was at about 11 o'clock when it was only 95 degrees out. (laughs) Yeah, I walked uh, about 15 blocks to Chipotle at noon. What'd you do that for? Chipotle. 
We yeah. don't have it here. No. I can never get it. And I, I grew up, well, grew up, I was in grad school, but when I was in grad school, there's one a block from my house and I <laughs> ate it all the time and I miss it. So yeah, I, I braved the heat. It's the worst decision I've made this year, probably. Probably. Geez, I could have taken you to like eight, eight different, uh, uh, more insanely, uh, whatever, Mexican restaurants, but then you have an attachment to that one. I do, yeah. It's uh, it's a weird kind of fetish, I guess. And I didn't know you then. I met you like the second day I was there. But oh, that's that true. was pretty much as soon as I landed. Oh, okay. Yeah, he went nuts. Oh, here it is. Because my favorite place in Tucson is also has a place in Al. I'm sorry, in Phoenix, where the thing was. But it was Phoenix. like a ten minute drive from the hotel. I dragged three or four different people there. They're they're all totally amazed. So if you speak in another uh, one of these things, place? huh? The pizza place you were telling me about? Oh no, the pizza place was um, that was another place I dragged a bunch of people to. There was um, a, a, uh, another yeah, anthropologist right and a sociologist, and Chris O'Brien, the cattle mutilation researcher, and Cliff Mahuti, the um, uh, he's a Hopi Indian. I'm sorry, uh, Zuni, Zuni uh, tribal elder uh, talks about the UFO subject. But anyway, yeah, we all went over and had a um, rollicking uh, night at the uh, what's it called? I can't remember the name of the pizza place, but it got best pizza restaurant in the United States like two or three years in a row. And it's in Phoenix yeah. and it deserves it. I mean, that the stuff, their stuff's amazing. Um, yeah, that was only like three or four blocks from the conference hotel, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We walked over there. It was still like, you know, almost a hundred degrees, but we took our time and walked over there <laughs> and it was, you know. Yeah, we went at like 5.30 or 6 or 7 or something like that, yeah. like right after sunset. And it was still, you know, It doesn't matter. Blazingly, I went for a little walk. Uh, I think it was like the Friday night we were there. It was probably 1 in the morning, and I, I couldn't believe it. it was just as hot. It yeah. felt just as hot as it did at noon. I mean, the sun, as long as you're out of the sun, obviously, it's different. Yeah, yeah. But well, yeah, even 12.30, yeah. 1 in the morning, it was Well, the city's a heat up. sink, too. Everything gets heated up by the sun in the daytime, and then it radiates at night. If you go out in the desert, it's probably 20, 30 degrees cooler than that because this, the ground yeah. doesn't pick up that heat and trap it. Yeah. Like the... Concrete what, jungle. Yeah, exactly. And we were right in the middle yeah, of it Yeah, I think they there. call that the albedo effect or something, how it how cities change the climatic, climatic patterns. Or, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I'll buy, uh, yeah, I think it's called the albedo effect. Yeah, I think there's even a plan to. Um, I think there's a so certain kind of solar generator that uh, works on the principle, not the principle, on the fact that um, of the temperature difference between day and night, and the cooling and the warming oh. of the mostly the cooling of uh, whatever you, whatever panels or whatever they have that convert that thermal energy into uh, into electrical energy. Um, I think there. Huh. Uh, that's something they're thinking about right now. At least I read something about it a few weeks ago. So it's like geothermal, but with cities. Well, it's ju it's the, it's uh, like uh, it's just using the thermal um, the uh, temperature difference between day and night on some kind of substance that apparently can, uh, can convert or or process that can convert that th uh, thermal differential into a uh, into a current. So huh. that's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know if it's a, as efficient as uh, solar panels, which are compl are really inefficient anyway. What do they yeah. convert like less than twenty percent of the energy that hits them? Something like right. that. Well, I mean, quantum dots might help with that. I don't know much about it, but it seems like it's it's potentially more efficient. I, there's there, yeah, there's there's a lot of room for improvement with those. 
Um, but that makes a lot of sense, just the, the hot, cold day and night thing. Yeah, and that would work really well in you know in a desert area where there's vast differences mm-hmm. between the the temperatures in the day and the night, even yeah. even in the winter. I mean, here here in Butte, Montana, we had there was one day there was almost a hundred degree swing in temperature. A hundred? Wait, that's that insane. sounds like way too much. All of a sudden, <laughs> I don't even I don't even believe that statistic. All of a sudden. <laughs> But no, I think, oh, oh, no, here's what it was. Not not in one day. It was a 100-degree difference between the record high and the record low uh-huh. for that day. So it wasn't, it didn't happen in one day. But, like, the high was something like, uh, was it 70 and the low was negative 30 or something like that. Oh, I see. I don't know. We have some insane temperature swings here, even even in one day. Like like I tell people all the time, you have your heat cranking in the morning and your air conditioner blasting in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it seems like that technology could be good good here too. Yeah, I think so. I met uh, Dr. Michael P. Masters here. We we're talking to uh, um, a couple months ago. His book uh, right now, the f- the first one. I don't know if you're going to write any more about this subject. I would like to see one oh. if you do. Okay, I will then. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's called Identified. Just for you. Yeah, Identified Flying Objects, a Multidisciplinary Scientific Approach to the UFO Phenomenon. Dr. Masters is a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana, as he just said. After receiving a PhD in anthropology from The Ohio State University in 2009, where he specialized in hominin Evolutionary Anatomy, Modern Human Variation, Archaeology, and Biomedicine. Dr. Masters spent the following decade developing a broad academic background that unites multiple scientific disciplines with the aim of elucidating a currently unexplained phenomenon. Remaining vigilant in his own skepticism, which we were talking about here just before the show, um, Dr. Masters continues this research with the intent of initiating informed dialogue about UFOs via an abductive method of inquiry, which we will explain, is firmly rooted in science and the principle of parsimony. Uh, collectively, Dr. Master's background, education, and current research program combined to offer a unique perspective and novel approach to addressing unanswered questions. See, he's doing stuff because he knows it. Um, pertaining to a widely recognized yet poorly understood aspect of modern global culture, which is the UFO thing. I, By the way, I wasn't doing stuff. Um, our, our janitor came in to clean out my trash can while you were talking. <laughs> well, that <laughs> was a good a time for him to do it. I have the sign on the door that says recording in progress. Do not disturb. But um, yeah, my apologies. Oh, I don't care. It's part It's part of the <laughs> honesty of me. the show. No. I was sitting very, very still the whole time okay. listening intently to what <laughs> you were saying. You said you liked it, that uh, what you wrote uh, for your blurb on the back of the book. So instead of having you explain what the book is about, which you're going to be doing for the next, what, hour and a quarter or whatever, or hour and three quarters, however long you got. We can do an hour, we can do two, I don't care. So the idea of this book is, could UFOs and aliens simply be us but from the future? Uh, this provocative new book cautiously examines the premise that extraterrestrials may instead be our own, be our distant human descendants using the anthropological tool of time travel to visit and study us study us on our our in their own hominin evolutionary past um, do you want me to read it greg yeah i think you'd better read it because you've got just got finished reading your book for a whatever so you I read did. it yeah. i did that i did that audio book for like four months so, yeah so um, you're gonna have a lot better uh flow about what you want to say please do, do you, it. you want me much, to, do you yeah. want me to use like a uh maybe like a 
Neil deGrasse Tyson voice or Barry Manilow or Sting or something. Because whichever one you think is best, the one that you think completely does not go with what you're reading. All right. <laughs> so I've got a helium balloon sitting here. I could just uh, take a couple hits of helium and try do that. It. that. Try that. Kind of, yeah. All right. <laughs> 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 I kind of wish I did all of a sudden. That'd be a super fun way to do it. <laughs> Go ahead. This provocative new book, Cautiously... Ex oh, God, I can't do it either. You're, that's a lot harder than it seems. I have new respect for your 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 role in this. <laughs> all right, never mind. I'm being you lazy. You do it. I give up. Okay. Cautiously examines the premise that extraterrestrials may instead be our distant human descendants using the anthropological tool of time travel to visit and study us us in their own hominin evolutionary past. Dr. Michael P. Masters, a professor of biological anthropology, specializing in human evolutionary anatomy, archaeology, and biomedicine, explores how the persistence of long-term biological and cultural trends in human evolution may ultimately result in us becoming the ones piloting these disc-shaped craft, which are likely the very devices that allow our future progeny to venture backward across the landscape of time. Your turn. Moreover, these extra tempestrials are ubiquitous. I knew I wouldn't. I wouldn't hit that one. Are ubiquitously <laughs> that's why I, described. That's why I threw, threw you under the bus there, man. <laughs> bipedal. I knew it was coming. Are ubiquitously described as bipedal, large-brained, hairless, human-like beings who communicate with us in our own languages and who possess technology advanced beyond, but clearly built upon our own. These accounts, coupled with a thorough understanding of the past and modern human condition, point to the continuation of established biological and cultural trends here on Earth, long into the distant human future. It's good teamwork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now i got to find my actual question. <laughs> well, I think we just explained it all, so we yeah, okay. wrap up. Thanks, now. everyone. Yeah. Yeah, hey, thanks for tuning in, folks. At the end That's of the show, you, you, need to know. you actually have to pick a song, so try try and think about that one. I I, I ambush uh, people with that. Uh, the guest always gets the end uh, end music. Uh, choose the music at the end of the show. That. Yeah, and if it's something it's something your band did, just send me the um, uh, a file, and I'll put it at the end. What what kind of uh, outro is it? How long is it? As long as you want it to be. Hmm. I've All had 30-second right. outros. I've had, like, 12-minute outros. <laughs> I like it. I actually wrote a song uh, called Probe Me for Jesus. It's about, <laughs> it's about time, traveling, time traveling aliens. It's, it's the whole phenomenon, but at the end, uh, what is that line? Uh, he, he probed my girl's ass, and then he probed mine and said, we only travel through time. <laughs> is the last line in that song, but I never, I never actually recorded it. I was, I'm, I'm going to try to get my band to record that one this this winter. I think when we're all sick of being stuck inside from the snow and ice, or I mean, this whole conversation is about time travel. So once time travel is possible, we just come back, yes. give you that MP3, mm -hmm. you add it at the end, and boom. So if it's there then I think that proves that time travel will be possible at some point in the future. Uh, that's going to be the experiment, and I have no doubt that it's going to work. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> awesome. You started at the beginning in your book, and you said one of the first things you remember seeing that what kind of piqued your interest in UFOs was a cover of Communion. Was that true, or did you have an interest before that? Um, well, that's, that's when I had sort of this... Um, 
I, I don't know, flash of awareness, I guess you could call it. Look, looking up at that book cover. Um, yeah, the, the imagery that's on, well, I guess it's in chapter one of the book. It's also on my website and some t-shirts and stuff, but that, oh, yeah, yeah. that imagery of the early hominin, modern human alien form, that thought process or that image popped in my head when I was eight years old, looking up at that book. So I didn't actually read it until I was in, uh, I think I started it in grad school much, much later, but, but yeah, no, that was, that was pretty, that was a pretty big part of how this whole journey began is just seeing the cover of that book. It sounded like you had a future flash to your past from the future, meaning that image flashed in your mind and now we're sitting here talking. Yeah. And you know, I often wonder if I sent it to myself. Because I don't, I don't believe consciousness is bound by time. Uh, I, obviously, it's bound to our brains, and it is a big part of the linear time that we experience as we move from past to future. But the whole, many aspects of um, dream, dream states, um, deja vu, which I have a crazy amount of deja vu. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I personally, my personal belief system is that when we die, our consciousness and whatever energetic form it exists beyond the neurons and uh, the the morphological aspects of our brain just re-enters our bodies at the time of birth. And that light at the end of the tunnel is essentially just you coming back out into the world uh, and beginning the same life over and over again. So, um yeah, I mean, if if I can if I can see things from the future when I'm asleep, when I'm dreaming, why can't I send something back consciously or perhaps subconsciously to a earlier point in my own life? I don't know, um, but I, I always wonder why that happened at that moment too. Like, what was it about looking up at that book cover when I was eight years old in the living room, my house at one hundred four two four, Roar Road, and saying? Oh, they must be us from the future. Um, so I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe I, I time cheated a little bit, sent it to myself because I knew I'd be doing this much later on in my life. You know, well, there's, I've had a few people on the show talking about uh, that very thing and how we might not be time bound. And um, specifically, I guess the idea which you just alluded to that um, consciousness or wh- whoever we are does not reside in the physical brain. It resides somewhere else and the physical brain. is just like a... Uh, what a uh, uh, a Wi-Fi station or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. It just kind of harnesses this energy um, to our physical form, to our bodies. Lately, I've been wondering, um, and if maybe it's just a situation of of quantum superposition, where our brains and on a subatomic level, we have our, our conscious energy is somehow a superposition of the matter that exists within our brains and that at at death you have this decoherence take place. And then that energy still exists. It's still a part of the realm, whatever that might mean. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's free to move about the cabin, so to speak. It's not bound to our, our physical form anymore, uh, because it's been decoupled and, and possibly reenters us at the time of birth. But I, I have, absolutely no way to back that up that's just speculation 
There's um, a there's that is something I've been thinking about lately. Yeah, there's speculation in the book as well, but it's uh, along the lines of something you call well, it's not you call. That's this is an idea. Abductive reasoning. Now, of course, people listening to this show will say, "What about abductions?" No, that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> what what it has to do it's with funny is you mentioned that too. Yeah, let me interject. It's funny you mentioned that Go ahead. too because I didn't even think about that when I was talking about abductive reasoning. <laughs> that someone could confuse that for abductions. Yeah, and then Whitley Strieber uses abductive ago, reasoning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it dawned on me that maybe that wasn't the best uh, choice of terms, but but yeah, no, it's an it's an abductive approach. It's one that. I try to avoid speculation. I, I, I acknowledge when I'm speculating, as I just did about 35 seconds ago. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, an, an abductive approach is, is one that looks at all of the available evidence, and it tries to yield a plausible conclusion, but isn't necessarily trying to positively verify it. There's no way to do that uh, with something as complex and mysterious as the UFO phenomenon. But it's um, it finds the simplest and most likely explanation. It follows Occam's razor, the principle of parsimony. And and right now at this current point in time, I feel like that's the best approach. Right. Um, and I will say when I started reading the book, I, w- I had a cocked eyebrow. It's like, well, how well can you support this? And it's so well supported. Um, I had to actually read some passages more than once just to make sure understood what you were talking about because um, some of this dealt with ideas, concepts, um, areas of knowledge that I wasn't familiar with. And, you know, that's why I read. That's why I talk to people like you. So basically, you already read what the premise behind this was. But uh, I think uh, the two linchpins of your argument is, one, what is the evidence for um, the current state of backwards time travel? And two, what does hominid or hominin, I guess it's called, evolution look like in the future, and how did you mix these together? I think those are the, um, those are the basic premises of the book. Uh, so maybe we can deal with the, uh, which part do you want to deal with first, the uh, evolution or the time travel? I would say uh, a small drink of both. Okay. <laughs> and then with elaboration. Oh, yes, on. I have, um, I have this- many questions on both. Very good. Very good. Well, the thing is that those you're right. Those are the two main areas of interest for this hypothesis. And it's it's one that's been around for a while. Like I said, I was eight years old when it crossed my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. But but people have been talking about this as a possibility for a while. And honestly, I think it's because it makes the most sense. There's a lot of details of this phenomenon that seem to fit well within this time travel model or what I call an extra tempestrial model. And, and I realized early on, and it's, it's nice that you bring that up because I started out as a physics and astronomy major as Mm. an undergraduate at Ohio university in Athens, Ohio, and decided that I was more interested in pursuing the biological side of this. So I switched to anthropology with a focus in human evolution uh, around my sophomore, junior year. But I think the two are equally important to building some sort of holistic understanding around this idea. Um, so the time travel model, it, it's it's necessary. We, you can't just say they're from our future without trying to explain 
uh, or bringing into the fray current evidence from the field of physics that talks about the possibility or the impossibility of time travel. So I try to do that, uh, bring in current research from this field, uh, also acknowledge the haters, the skeptics, and tie that in with a broad-based, long-term evolutionary perspective to understand how we got to where we are now, where we came from, where we might be going based on that long-term evolutionary evidence, and then also the, the cultural, the technological side. If we continue to unravel the mysteries of, of time and space, will we be able to bend time back on itself? Will we be able to, at some point in the future, travel backward in time? And if so, then those two things dovetail very nicely at some point in our future where we have the technology and the physical form that both seem to be represented in these alien encounters, these these encounters with UFOs and, and the alien beings that purportedly pilot them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that, you know, it, you along with a um, few other academics at this point are starting to take seriously that, okay, people didn't make this up. They're not hallucinating. Right. There's something actually going on here, and it would be dishonest of us not to take them seriously and start to take the information that they're giving us and see what we can make out of it, um, abductively mm-hmm. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, and not only that, like it, the fact that they're all saying very similar things. Yeah. If you average, you and I were just talking before the show about a, a qualitative approach and looking at the meaning behind things and the words people use. You can learn a lot from that. And if if we did a, a huge and we could probably do this honestly with big data analyses as they exist today if we did a a huge content analysis of all of the things said about all of the abduction cases ever we would probably find some really interesting patterns yeah meta-analysis on it yeah meta-analysis exactly of of what people say what they're describing and if they were all just making this up you would expect way more variation in what they're saying. But there's so many commonalities to these stories. And, and you can look in people's eyes and tell when they're lying. And, and the people that have had these experiences are, are freaked out. They, they saw something, they experienced something that, that should be taken seriously and should be investigated and should be understood. And it's our role as scientists to do that. The ones that are sitting on the outskirts saying, oh, whatever, they're all crazy. Those people aren't doing their jobs. <laughs> and and that's unfortunate. They're failing science. They're failing humanity yeah. by not asking or trying to answer these questions. They're they're just it's too easy to dismiss it. And and those people, like they always blame us. And I'm one of those people, I guess. Um, so I I feel like I should acknowledge that. But we as scientists should be investigating these big questions. We should be trying to get to the bottom of this because it's a real phenomenon. And if we're not doing that, if we're just outright dismissing it, then we're not doing our jobs. Right. I think as uh, as time goes on, and especially in the last two or three years, whichever uh, linchpin you want to put in there to say that uh, what, what the precipitating event was, um, I think that's that uh, attitude is more common amongst um, people in both the hard scientists, sciences and the humanities. Um, taking mm-hmm. this a little bit more seriously. And um, uh, Jeff Kripal, who I had on a few weeks ago, he said that the the two sides need the, the those two sides need to talk to each other. 
in specifically yeah. in reference to this issue. Um, and that's why I'm having, you know, people from the hard science side and people from the artistic side and people from the humanity side, all, I, I want them all to have their, their say on the show to see if we can have some sort of, you know, at least with myself and the listeners, some sort of synthesis of these uh, approaches and see if they take mm -hmm. us in a place to places where we haven't gone before. Um, for the, for the people listening to this show, I was actually kind of fascinated because you spend a chapter or two sort of dismantling the extraterrestrial explanation. And that, that well, I found very interesting, actually. Not, not necessarily dismantling. Well, not dismantling, but, but, but saying, look, here, are the, here is what we know. And it seems sli slightly, you know, it seems unlikely that this would happen based on what we know right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's more of a critical approach to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, which has a lot of holes in it. If, if you think about just the vast distances that need to be traveled, if you think about how unlikely it is that you would have not only two civilizations close enough together that arose at the same time in the 14 and a half billion year history of the universe, but happened to also be bipedal, upright walking humanoids that this one had slightly more advanced technology than our own and that they could communicate with each other and speak in the same languages or that they wouldn't introduce themselves after traveling across the cosmos together. There's just a lot of holes, uh, a lot of implausible aspects to the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So I've, I've, like I've said many times, I'm not, I don't see these as mutually exclusive. Um, but I do think we need to acknowledge the improbability of all of those things happening. And the laws of physics exist throughout the universe. The way that we understand them here, we can assume they, they exist in the same capacity in other places. The same laws apply. Um, but what's interesting, and, and this is actually something that was brought up, um, a, a listener, a reader, I don't remember who it was. I wish I could remember their name to give them credit. Uh, maybe we can add that later on. Okay. But they, they pointed out that one, one criticism I always bring up about the extraterrestrial model is that in traveling away from your planet, whether we're leaving Earth, going somewhere else, or an extraterrestrial civilization is leaving their planet and coming here, we both have to deal with time dilation, or what's more commonly referred to as the twins paradox, where you leave, there's two identical twins, one leaves, the other one stays behind. Right. The twin in the spaceship travels at a high rate of speed, time travels much slower in their frame of reference compared to on Earth. They come back, the twin is much older. So in a long distant interstellar flight, traveling at a high rate of speed, you're talking about tens of thousands of years difference. So who in their right mind, who is going to say goodbye to their family and their friends and get in the spaceship and travel at a fraction of the speed of light and come back, and then it's thousands of years in the future? They've said goodbye to everyone they know, the civilization they're comfortable with, and for who, for what? Like, what do they get from that? But as an astute, highly precocious reader pointed out, if they had the ability to time travel, right? Now they can still go to that distant land. They can still go to that distant planet, that distant solar system. And on the return trip home, even though they're blasting through thousands of years of time as viewed by those that remained on Earth, if they had the ability to time travel, 
now they could return home and still have done that long distance voyage, that interstellar mission, and not have to sacrifice anything. And at that point, if that's how we are exploring space, why not explore time? If we have that technology, why not use that to explore time? And I'm not saying that interstellar travel is what's going to cause that. Uh, most likely it's the other way around. In the distant future, we'll probably have the ability to travel backward in time and then say, oh, wait, we can get around this massive problem about interstellar travel and having to leave our family and our civilization behind and then use that technology to actually explore. Because you can get you can get to the... And, and I, I'd actually like to be humble for a second, Greg, if you don't mind. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I, I mean, I consider myself a pretty humble person in general, uh, and I've been meaning to tell you this for a while, but why not do it on air so I can say you were right, I was wrong. Um, but you and I were talking about this down in Phoenix at the International UFO Congress about a guest you had on that explained that you could get to the center of the the galaxy yeah like kevin canoes ship time yeah that's the time you experience and and i for some reason i don't know maybe it had a couple too many beers or whatever i was just fighting you on that and i realized later that night that that yeah you were right you, and and your guest was right and i was wrong and i'd like to publicly acknowledge <laughs> you didn't have that. to do that but thank you i was well, going to no, bring I'd it like up to. again i'd like to and I think that's something that... And it wasn't me, it was Kevin. I mean, it was Kevin Knuth's yeah, no, idea. Yeah, no, I know, I know. And and you you fought for him, though, and, and he was right, and you were right to fight for him, even though I was just talking nonsense, you know, after a couple of beers. Like, no, that can't be right. But that that is right. That's how it works. And, and as you move away from Earth, say you're traveling at just a fraction below the speed of light, the light that's moving with you basically makes it look like everything on earth is frozen in time. Mm -hmm. So no matter how far you go, that light's moving with you and everything just stops as you see it looking back through a hypothetical telescope. But it's on your return trip home that you come blasting through all of these different uh, times. It compresses time in the same way it compresses space as you come back on your return trip. And that's the problem with interstellar travel. Because again, we can get to the center of the galaxy in like 20 years in the ship. But when we come back at almost the speed of light, that that may have been 10,000 years. Oh, uh, yeah. He addressed on. that. He addressed yeah. that. And, and he said, look, the only thing you have to throw, the few things you have to throw away here, um, the inertial problems as you're accelerating and decelerating. Right. Um, this is what I remember. Two, um, the... Uh, um, uh, well, the only other thing I remember is that you, what you just mentioned, why would you do this? Why would you take yeah. off? And he said, you would just basically have to become a spacefaring race. He did not account for the time travel backwards. What he said was, look, right. you just have to get a bunch of your friends and just become a spacefaring race and basically live. <laughs> you would ship time, live, you know, 60, 70, 80 years or whatever humans live. But because of all this travel, you would basically be immortal. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. <Right>. Well, <laughs> well, kind of. Here's what's cool. Not about from it, your too, point is, of view. No, no. But but looking at at this idea of interstellar travel in this regard, we we can only handle a certain number of g forces. But if you left our planet traveling with an acceleration equivalent to that of Earth, nine point eight meters per second squared, just say one g, mm -hmm. obviously, mm -hmm. um, you could still have gravity. Because you have this constant acceleration right. that you just have to orient your there. ship towards where you know where the force is, right. so it feel like gravity. But yeah. then, if you had what I'm going to call a flip ship, 
because it sounds cool. Uh, <laughs> and then you flip your ship around, and the other side that was just the roof is now the floor. Mm-hmm. Your deceleration halfway through, you could also decelerate yeah. at 9.8 meters per second squared and then still have that same normal Earth gravity, uh, but slow down enough to when you got to your destination, you're not just smashed against the walls of the ship. Um, and in doing that with a constant acceleration in both directions, it only takes a year, uh, broadly speaking, to get to that point of acceleration or deceleration. So that would give you the ability to still travel to all of these distant places as long as you had time travel capabilities or, as as you pointed out, Kevin Newth pointed out, um, th- you just decided to live in space. You're just yeah. going to be space people. And that's cool, too. Uh, as long as there's a big enough ship and everybody didn't just stab each other because yeah. of the tight space. Oh, yeah. And the other one was if you're traveling through space at a relativistic speed, if you hit, you know, if you hit a piece of sand, it'll destroy your ship. So there's got to be some kind of yeah. shielding or something. <laughs> right. That's the thing about that whole warp drive thing. You always see that in different shows, Star Trek, obviously, the Orville, where they're just blatant stars are flying by, but... But that's not realistic. There's no way to plot that out so that you didn't hit something. Because, yeah, you're right. A speck of sand would just it, it'd go straight through your skull before you even knew it. Yeah. And the, the other thing he said was that, um, I mean, the, 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 he said you would have to figure out some kind of shielding or ablative shielding or something that would, you know, steer the particles or whatever it is or asteroids or whatever whatever you would encounter around your ship way before you mm-hmm. got there so it wouldn't you know obliterate you so he says there's you know, a lot of problems with this idea but if you got around them there are <laughs> theoretically <Yeah. laughs> you know here in montana we run into deer and elk a lot and we put these like metal bars on oh, our yeah, fenders yeah. yeah and maybe you could just put something like that on the spaceship and <laughs> protect everybody inside yeah, he said, or maybe some kind of shield that I said was ablative, so it just keeps getting hit and hit and hit and hit, and it either, you know, wears away or, or you know, absorbs or whatever it is. Who knows? Um, well, back to your book, as as we discover that that idea is sort of tenable, but actually when, if you read um, Michael's book here, you find out that it might be slightly more tenable than, uh, than uh, Kevin Knuth's idea, because it involves some other intangibles that's um, not intangibles, but things that are just outside of our, um, you know, maybe 20. Was that you breathing in the microphone? Um, yes. Sorry oh. about that. Am um, I boring yeah, you? And that's, not at all. No, I was actually, uh, I was, I was rubbing my nose and then I realized that I couldn't breathe and some air came out probably directly <laughs> into the microphone. And I apologize for that. But hey, I, this this is what started this conversation is that I was trying to tell you yep. that this model is not mutually exclusive, that, that I'm not trying to say that this is right, the extraterrestrial hypothesis is wrong. No, um, you're talking about, as so, you said, so, parsimony. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of unknowns with regard to time travel, too. We don't fully understand time. We don't fully understand how we would go about doing it. I provide the best evidence for our current understanding mm-hmm. in physics for how we would create frame dragging and the warpage of space-time in order to travel back in time. But that doesn't mean that any other model, as long as it has scientific merit, 
is is inaccurate or or that it shouldn't be considered because i think with with a phenomenon this mysterious we should consider everything mm -hmm. that's valid i mean obviously you know people make shit up all the time and yeah regardless of how <laughs> how passionately they say it if it doesn't have merit as a valid scientific hypothesis we should probably not consider it but the 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 people that are saying things where they're really trying to understand it and they're backing it up with things we should absolutely consider that so again i just like to reiterate that i'm not saying this is right everybody else is wrong but in in the context of the extraterrestrial hypothesis there are many things about this that that seem to make sense yeah i think you also talked about um communication barriers as well i thought that was kind of an interesting argument in there too um, yeah, the, the, I mean, the electromagnetic, uh, propagation, it travels at the speed of light, which is very fast, but things 25 million light years away aren't going to get here for 25 million light years and vice versa. So mm -hmm. any civilization, if they are communicating with us, there's a, a bit of a bubble around us as to what we can Right. hear or send <laughs> to them just based on that limitation again because of the universal laws of physics as we understand them now yeah also um i was uh i was attracted to your um explanation of getting around the grandfather paradox um so maybe you could be a, a little uh, specific about that for people um, because the grandfather paradox is you cannot travel backwards in time and kill your grandfather because that means you won't exist and as you say um, in your book, there's uh, a, a multitude of uh, scientific papers now that um, uh, either cast doubt on or obliterate that uh, that paradox. Yeah, you're you're right. A lot of seemingly conventional paradoxes really aren't, and I think I think a lot of that is because of a disconnect between the. Um, what, what you see on TV and in movies versus how we understand time and the actual potential for backward time travel in, in physics and philosophy and other areas of the sciences. So, so yeah, there's always that uh, back to the future scenario where you um, mess with the past and then you don't exist and you start to fade away or you come into contact with yourself and annihilate each other. Mm -hmm. But those things don't actually exist in that capacity and largely because of the main uh, the main idea in physics is is that the whole universe every moment that's ever existed from the beginning of time to the end of time the big bang to when the last bit of matter leaves this universe it's all a part of one giant block referred to as block time or landscape time. Oftentimes mm -hmm. the block universe is, is what it's referred to as. So within that, everything that exists in the past, regardless of what you go back and do, will have already been done. So there aren't paradoxes in the way that we think of them and that we see them in TV and in movies. But it's actually non-disruptive. You traveling into the past is non-disruptive because everything that results from you going to the past and interacting with the past has already occurred. It's already been done before you even left. And any ramifications of that interjection have already manifested themselves before you left. That moment between 
past and future, any change, and I'm using air quotes here, any change was already there. It's already a part of that past. There's self-consistency between those two points in time. So it's what you will have already done. It's what you always would have done. And in looking at it as this giant block of four-dimensional space-time where there's integration, there's interaction, there's this web of events that exist, it's easier to understand how there aren't paradoxes. There's there's self-consistency. And I draw heavily from the research of a a very well-known physicist named Igor Novikov, a Russian physicist, who has demonstrated these things and has very eloquently explained this in the context of what's become the Novikov self-consistency principle, because it's it's it gives a, a really good understanding of of how these things exist across different points in time. And I guess I guess a big part of it too. Uh, I'll keep this brief because I feel like I'm rambling on now. But no, you you, you should too, ramble. The show gives room for rambling. All right, very good, very good. Then I appreciate that, sir. Um, we, we, we like to think of things as all of these different possibilities, all these things that could happen. And within the context of block time, there really is only one outcome. We, we look forward into the future and that's all we know. All we know is the things that happen in the future. I, I think in the intro to your show, we're all interested in the future because that's where we're going to spend the rest of our lives. I wrote <laughs> that down cause I thought that was awesome. Um, and that's true. That's all we see. That's all we know. We move from past to future. And the idea of moving from future to past just confuses the hell out of us. And it hurts our brains and it makes us mad. Um, but in looking Because we don't past, live like that. <laughs> we don't live like that. You're right. We live from past to future. In, the, in physics, everything makes just as much sense running from future to past. Outside mm-hmm. of a couple things in quantum mechanics, everything makes just as much sense. But our cognition doesn't allow us to think that way. We see everything as this linear arrow of time. So right. looking to the future, we see all these possibilities. I could run over and punch that guy in the face for no reason whatsoever, and then all these things will happen. And <laughs> in some alternate universe, I did punch that guy in the face, and then that happened, and these things happened, and that split off these different multiverse scenarios. But, but in our universe, and the universe we know, the one that we have that we exist in, once we get to the future, Looking back at the time of death, at the very end of the universe, there was only one outcome. There only was one course of events, a lot of networks, a lot of interactions. But understanding time in this context of block time, we can see this very massive block of four-dimensional space-time and then moving within that, appearing and disappearing in different points within that block universe isn't paradoxical. It was always the way it was. And that violates our, our notions of, of causality. It violates our notions of free will, which pisses people off. Yeah. That's the one thing that pisses people off the most. Oh, so much. God, I get so much hate mail, um, about free will. People want free will. They want to believe that that exists, but in a block universe, everything in the past, we can see that this giant spool of uh of wool has been woven into one thread mm-hmm. but we still see looking forward the rest of that clump of wool that exists as these possibilities but if we really understand it from looking back at the past from the future there, there's no free will there, there that can't exist in this context and 
and and I probably lost half of your listeners by saying that just now. But and and that's not me. That's well, not my opinion. Well, I don't care. <laughs> well, the thing is, you <laughs> know, when back. I look at that, yeah. They'll <laughs> be back. When Double I look at that loose. concept, call me in the morning. All right. When I look at that concept, it seems to me a a, a issue of point of view. Yeah, you know exactly. that's just the way things are. I mean, if you you know, it's like there's no free will. It's like, well, if you're like on this trip where you know I can improve my future, and it's like, well, you probably can. You don't know what's mm-hmm. going to happen. Make make a choice and, and do should. something about it. You know, and maybe that's what you were always going to exactly. do. Exactly, thing that was. Have you ever seen a, a show called Dark on Netflix? No, I hardly I would recommend watch TV. All of your viewers. Well, this isn't TV. This is Netflix, Craig. Oh, okay. It's different. All right. So it's streaming. It's a streaming service. Yeah. Um, but but this show has done a very good job of demonstrating just that. How, however much we try to interject in the past, if we did have time travel technology and we could go to the past, whatever we try to do to change it, again, air quotes that you mm-hmm. can't see, yeah. change it, <laughs> you end up doing exactly what was already always going to have been done. And this show encapsulates that perfectly it's in german and there's english dubbing uh which which messes with you a little bit at first but then you get used (laughs) to it and you forget but it's very well made and they they really they they keep true to this self-consistency which is again not my opinion but the dominant model in physics about how time works and how backward time travel would work so i i recommend everyone to uh have a look at dark on Netflix and and you too, you too, Greg. Don't be anti TV. I'll tell you. Oh no, I'm not it. anti TV. The reason I don't watch much TV is I'm too busy producing content. And the other thing is, I worked in post production for 25 years, and 95 to 99 percent of what I saw was crap. <laughs> so it's hard. Uh, it's well, hard. This will challenge you. That this okay. will challenge you because the post production is huge in yeah. this because it's shot in German with German actors and then dubbed over. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you'll like it though. I think they did a really good job. Cause okay, I'm I'll also, take a look at it. I'm, I'm really critical of audio and audio quality and acting in general. But I, I think, I think you actually like this more because of that. I think it'll draw. Oh you no, in. I, I didn't mean that technically I meant content wise. Most things content wise uh, are absolutely horrible to me. And then there's a few, you know, exceptions, Recently, you know, I think we've we watched um, was it Wild 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 Life on uh, Netflix, I believe, and Stranger Things we enjoyed, and but it's hard mm-hmm. to get me to start watching something. So there's a good recommendation. So I'll start watching that. Um, the one, th- As you should. yeah, the, the one uh, quote from your book that actually made sense to me, which you just <laughs> explained. Yeah. No, with, with the, the thing that tied every, sorry, the thing that tied everything together about what you were just saying about um, block time and causality and all that um, was yeah. that uh, at the end of uh, one of your chapters on it, you said no one can change anything in the past given that their actions already exist as an interwoven part of that past. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that was the one that made me think, yep, you know what, that, that makes total sense. Um, the other yeah. concept, and, and again, that's that's not my idea. That's just how it's viewed. Uh, yeah. so I appreciate you. I appreciate you appreciating that. <laughs> um, the other concept that was in, I don't even know if it's the same chapter. I think earlier in the same chapter. I don't know which one. Um, that you kind of make a comparison. Tell me if I'm wrong here. That we we have no problem with navigation through space. 
So since there's block time and, and you know, space time are, are uh, inexorably linked, there shouldn't be any problem with navigation through time, theoretically. Or is that too yeah, simplistic um, or wrong? No, no, that's spot on. Um, yeah, because, I mean, what we do now is, and I think I, if I'm remembering correctly, I bring up the, the Philae landers part of the Rosetta mission where we, mm-hmm. we calculated where that, uh, comet Astra, I don't remember what it was now. It's com- uh, I think where it, was a it would be. It's a comet, yeah. Where it would be in space in time. Mm-hmm. And so we already do this. We already figure out where things are in space and time. So really traveling through time, we also have to account for that. We'd also have to figure out where the Earth would have been at this point in time. And we can't see it. Yeah. It, in the same way that we can't see where that comet's going to have been when we land the Philae lander on it. Um, and that adds an extra variable, an extra set of variables that we have to account for. And actually, I couldn't remember who mentioned um, that, that thing earlier, but my wife pointed out not too long ago that maybe that's why the Roswell crash happened or maybe that's why other crashes happened because it's so hard to figure out not only when you're going, but also where things are when you're going. Because sometimes we just screw up. We get it wrong and then smash into something that we didn't think was supposed to be there. But boom, there it is. And now mm. we're scattered all over the desert um, trying to figure out what the hell happened. Because, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult as it is now in real time. But in different times, I imagine it's much harder and uh, it's definitely something that we're going to have to consider once we start pursuing the physical reality of backward time travel. Yeah, what the hell's a navigational time map look like? <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, even just the, the spin of the Earth, where it is around our sun at any given time, like we're going to have to take all that into account. But I, I think we will be able to. If you look at how far we've come, in just the last hundred years and what we've been able to do in that short time span, you add a five, 6,000 years to that. And there's no doubt we'll be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe we can, in my move- opinion. yes. Well, you make a good case for it in the book and I don't have the wherewithal to argue with you against it. And I don't want to, because I've, I really enjoyed the book. Um, maybe we can move on. We're, we're through the first hour. Maybe we can s- spend the second hour here. If you want to stay for that long, um, talking about the, um, your specialty, which is evolutionary biology and how that fits in with your theory about us and how we would look and how that fits in with the witness testimony about what some of these aliens or whatever you call them looked like. I know that's not a question. It's kind of a, let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's my favorite part to talk about. That's what I got a degree in, and that's what all my research is in. So I'd, I'd absolutely love to yeah, do that. The, the premise uh, is we we're going to look a, like a, what a, people think aliens look like uh, sometime in the distant yeah. future. Yeah. You mind if we take a quick fiver? And then I'm, I'm happy to stay for another 45 uh, to an hour, but um, wouldn't mind stretching the legs real quick. Oh, go right ahead. Let me, let me put um, it on pause, and we'll, um, we'll continue here when you're ready. Cool. That's why I left the weird, awkward pause at the end of what you said in case it was a good editing point. Oh, thank you. See, you're thinking. That's... I was trying. I was trying to be hospitable. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right back. Okay. Uh, yeah, I apologize, but I've noticed if I don't take a break, I um, 
if I've been here for too long, I just I ramble on nonsensically. <laughs> but if I take a little break, it kind of allows me to focus more, and I, I should be much more focused here over the next 10 to 20 minutes. Okay, you seem totally focused to me beforehand, but whatever you oh, want to really? do. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I thought I got kind of rambly there for a while. I like people being rambly because, well, especially if it's something interesting. If they're rambling and not interesting, I interrupt them. <laughs> I guess that's probably a good strategy. Yeah. What my strategy is, if you're being interesting, I'll shut up. If you're not being interesting, I'll interrupt you and make it interesting again. There you go. <laughs> I like it. You're on a tight ship. You're on a tight ship. I do, but I try not to let people notice that that's what's going on. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I won't tell them. Okay. So what we were talking about, if you're ready to go again... I am indeed. Your idea of evolutionary biology, your specialty, and how that intersects with ideas um, of uh, what, or not re ideas, but uh, r reported characteristics of whatever aliens or extraterrestrials or whatever is in these things are during abductions, etc. And uh, I had heard this argument before. I have an old book. I can't remember who wrote it or where it was, and I couldn't find it. But I remember there was a section about neoteny in the book. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I'll find it for if you want, because it's that would a, be awesome. It's yeah. one of the they said, here's a bunch of different ideas from the sixties, I think, nineteen sixties. Wow. It's not something that most people talk about. That's so great. Yeah, it was just, it was I can't remember who the author was, but they said, Look, here here are different ideas about what might be going on here. And they didn't say it's us from the future. They just said, well, maybe it's aliens that are more advanced than us. And if we get advanced, we'll, we'll probably look like this. Yeah. Oh, they're so close. They're so close. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from bias, of course. Yes. So how, how do we get from the way we're looking now to what alien grays or whatever you call them look like? And, I, and th there's a really nice bit in the book, or a lot of them, about the history of how evolutionarily we ended up looking the way we look now, and also other uh, mammals. Well, it all began about <laughs> 3.7 billion years ago. Settle in, children. It's going to be a, a long story. Um, no, you're right. It's, it's, it's something that, that really did exist over a long period, but it's not... Um, uh, there's there's so many factors. Yeah, it's like it's okay, like trying to find the edge of a ball or trying yeah. to find Why do you a line to draw yeah. in a continuum. But what is the I'll, I'll how does the it. idea that we're starting to look more like our infantile form uh, come into being, and what evidence is there for it, and where do you think it might be going in the future based on that? Were you just reading that from something? No, I just I just thought it up out of my brain. <laughs> that was very very well articulated. I liked that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, that's a great question because I, some, when I first started thinking about this, like I told you, I've been thinking about this since I was eight. But when I first started thinking about it, and I've seen this reiterated by many people on Facebook and Twitter and just who reach out to me through my website, is that, that they're focused on what's going to happen between now and then. What What's going to happen that makes us have big eyes and big round heads and tiny little faces with pointy chins and gray skin and frail bodies. And, and then I realized that we don't have to speculate about that because 
once I really started to delve deep into human evolution, I realized that the long history of our hominin clade, our, our phylogenetic lineage on this planet, has already been moving toward that over the last six million years of evolution. So I think, I mean, as much as I'd like to speculate about what might happen to give us these specific traits, I think it's probably just a product of the continuation of the same trends that have existed since we became bipedal, since we stood upright and started walking on two legs. Because as that happened, our, our heads had to rotate down to see where we were going. If you imagine standing a chimpanzee straight up, its natural head position is going to be looking up at the sky. So in order to see where it's going, its head has to rotate down. And in doing that, it flexes the whole cranium and specifically the basic cranium. And you're familiar with this part in the book, I'm sure, because I think I brought it up two or three times. But um, if you think about a slinky, it's probably the best way to understand this. The mm -hmm. base yeah. being the front of the slinky, the foramen magnum at the back of the skull being the back of the slinky. And if you bend those toward each other in the same way that our basic cranium flexed over evolutionary time since becoming bipedal, it what happens to the slinky? It opens up all of the space at the top. It gets right. more curved. And that same thing happened to our neurocranium where it allowed more space for the brain simply because we stood upright. And then later there was all of these feedback loops between intelligence and culture that contributed to that even more to fill in that space with a bigger brain. But, but really yeah. early on it was just standing upright. Yeah, yeah, civilization, uh, social interaction, mm -hmm. language, culture, fire, stone tools. There's this feedback loop. And most importantly, about bipedalism, or not most importantly, but I'd say a close second, mm -hmm. is that it freed up our hands to be able to make those things. Yeah. If we're using our hands to walk quadrupedally, they're being used to walk. If we stand upright, now we can use them for all of these uh, things that help our brain grow and that our brain can contribute to what our hands do. And so again, it's that feedback loop. Um, so, so I really steered away from speculating about what might happen between now and that point in the future where we potentially become these extra tempestrial time travelers and rather just focused on this long, rich history of knowledge that we have as paleoanthropologists about our evolutionary past and what got us to where we are now what changes occurred to get us here now. And if those same changes continued into the future, yes, we're likely to have more rounded neurocrania and smaller faces and bigger eyes and bigger eye orbits and different body shapes and potentially gray skin from a lack of pigmentation due to self-domestication. And, and thank God you mentioned this neoteny, heterochrony, pedomorphosis, these things that that contribute to the tri the childlike traits that are so ubiquitously reported in these close encounters where they, they seem almost childlike with big eyes and small bodies, big bulbous bobbleheads bouncing around on top of their bodies. A big part of that is likely related to this trend of neoteny throughout human evolution as well. So if you look at the long history of, of humanity on this planet, Projected into the future, it's very likely that we would resemble these uh, these alien beings as they're so often described. Mm -hmm. 
I was prepared for you to keep talking, which I was I was reaching for something on the desk. <laughs> so what, what I was trying to say. What you were trying to say. Well, you know, what what is the advantage to this? What is the advantage to turning into um, uh, little tiny frail beings with big heads and no teeth and and uh, the rest? Well, I mean, we can't know that. There's no way to know for sure what's going to be beneficial in any future environment. It, we even struggle with that in the past. Like, we we can think about all of these scenarios in which bipedalism would have been beneficial. For a long time, there's something known as the savanna hypothesis, where we thought that the the drying out of East Africa because of the Great Rift Valley and changes to the environment and the geology and the ecosystem created fewer trees, so we had to stand up. So we could see over the grasses to see predators coming or to find food or to carry our, our offspring. And then we realized that this shift toward bipedalism actually happened about two million years prior to this uh, change to the landscape in East Africa. So then we had to try to figure out, well, what what was it? Why did we do this in the first place? Uh, and we can't know that that behavioral shift doesn't preserve in the archaeological record, so we can't know. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's that's a big stumbling block for our knowledge of the future as well. We can't know what's going to happen in the future. We can't know exactly why anything happened in the past. We can see a lot of data related to environmental variables. We can work with paleoecologists and, and geologists to try to understand why this would have suited that environment but we we can't know for sure um and and that applies i think at many different levels of of human evolution past present and future right yeah until you actually find you know some sort of conclusive evidence you can't really make that you can't even abductively uh reason that out particularly at least not with any kind of uh um reliability um, but no, the, and oh, we're left with best guesses. We're left with the best argument we can make based on the data. And and a lot of people see that as being a failing of the sciences, but that is science. That's how science works. We go by what we have, the data that we have, which is very, very overwhelming. The amount of fossil evidence and uh, the stone tools from different sites all throughout the world and we build a case for what happened based on that knowledge, based on this data and rigorous studies, and, and we piece it together. And, and I think we have a pretty good understanding of how it all happened. And again, with time travel, if we had that ability now, we'd have so many more answers. We could go back to that time when they f- first stood yeah, up. That was right? my and next question. Yeah, look at how they did it. And, and, and that's another correlate with this phenomenon is as we look at what they do or what they allegedly do or reportedly do when they pick us up. It's exactly what I would do as a paleoanthropologist if I had access to this technology. I'd be taking skin samples and hair samples and fecal samples, the whole alien probe thing. I'd be probing the hell out of these people, trying to figure out what they ate and what their diet consisted of, and how, what their caloric intake was at any given time. And we could learn so much behaviorally, culturally, and, and obviously physiologically, morphologically, if we currently had that technology. And so what we see them doing or what's reported that they're doing uh, seems to fit with exactly what we would do as modern anthropologists. 
the one question that comes up, and I think I've asked this on the show before, is why would they need to do it so many times? Like over and over and over and over to hundreds and hundreds of people. Because right now you get one, uh, you know, one DNA sample, which you don't even have to probe people or anything. All you have to do is get a piece of hair or something. Um, mm-hmm. But why so many? Well, I mean, that could be sample bias, too. If you had, say, one group from the year 15,000 oh, coming I see back and sampling, yeah. sampling 500-year intervals throughout a 20,000-year period, and then you had another group that didn't have access to that data, because there's a lot of things that can change between those times, who were also doing it, it, it could maybe seem like there was more frequency at certain times than I others see. because those times were being sampled more. Or, you know, and I don't, I don't think it's all just biomedical studies. I think there's also a time tourism aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, the World War II, the Foo Fighters, with all of the interest in nuclear at- activity, um, with all of the major events in human history or just mundane things as we see them that might seem important to people in the future, I think that could account for some of the sightings and uh, the more benign UFO encounters. So uh, there could be a lot of things, especially now, like this is kind of, if, if we are on the path to becoming them, this sort of seems like an important time. When we first started to explore space, when we first started to develop the internet and computers, uh, and technologies that will eventually lead to what they are and what they use, I mean, we could we could potentially be a very interesting time to them at many points throughout the future. So it could help explain certain flaps that have existed since the 1940s. Mm-hmm. You also had one little section on eye shape, on the big elongated eyes and the, the possible evolutionary development of that. Something. I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. That sounds right. That sounds like something I I did. It was something to do uh, with um the, the the as the cranium gets bigger, the eyes get bigger, but there's not enough room so uh, in the because your eye is completely um surrounded almost all the way around by bone. Um except there's an you know, there's a ridge up there and there's the, near your nose and everything, but the only place where your eye could expand, I guess physiologically is out to the side. Oh man, I put that in the book. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, no, that's 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 what I that's my research. That's what I do for uh, like my actual. I didn't guess research. it. That was in there. No. Yeah. All right. Well, I thought maybe you went back and found like a, a journal publication or something. That's funny. Oh, uh, nope. Yeah, too I lazy. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the context of. Um, uh, the whole like uh, lens thing, like why they might have lenses on their eyes. Yeah, you're right. I did throw that in there. Yeah, no, that's that's the main thing I I do is biomedical research. I mostly look at um, the the eye in a functional sense, and if perhaps uh, juvenile onset myopia and astigmatism and and other problems may be related to our our frontal lobe growing out over top of the eyes. Um, we're the only mammal that has that craniofacial configuration. And if you look at any other mammal, their brain is well behind where their eyes are and their face sticks out a lot. So as our brain grew forward and expanded mediolaterally, it got wider and our face is retracted. Um, what happens to the eye in a functional sense? And yeah, as you 
pointed out, uh, the only way it could still grow larger in association with the, the frontal lobe of the brain is to come out through the eye orbit. And that may account for why the most common correlate with myopia or nearsightedness is an elongated eye with a focal length that doesn't match up with the retina it focuses in front of the retina. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I know that it seems funny to talk about that in this context because, uh, that's, that's my main area of research and I've published a number of papers about that in different academic journals. But I, I think it's relevant to this question too, is, yeah. is, is you're right. One of the biggest, um, things reported about them is not just their big heads, but their big eyes. Mm-hmm. Those big eyes that are so similar to our own, they still have a cornea and an iris and a pupil and all these things that we recognize in ourselves. Well, um, some but then do. You also hear about, yeah, some. You also hear about, that's my next point, is you hear about the black lenses, the dark eyes. Oh, yes. And that very well could be a... Uh, yeah, a lens in the same way that we wear contact lenses, whether it's to shield the light or it's some sort of bionic lens where it helps them focus or see things in different capacities. And and I got a little flack from people uh, for for mentioning the uh, the abduction video. Oh, the the Santilli film, as everybody knows. Yeah, yeah, Santilli film. And and one dude, like I've only had a couple trolls, which I see as a win. That's a total uh, win. I've, I've had hundreds of well, say hundreds, so. but yeah, I've had I've had three. I've had three trolls, uh, and trolls are assholes. You know, they're all the same. They're insecure. Yeah. They have mommy issues or daddy issues, and yes. they get hung up on one particular thing. But uh, one of my three trolls <laughs> was hung up on the the alien abduction film, the Santilli film, and I acknowledged very clearly that. This was a fake. This was uh, an alleged reproduction of an actual film, and only Santilli and maybe two or three other people can know if that was a real film or not. I'm not trying to get into that debate. The only reason I brought it up was because in that film, you can very clearly see them take off a black lens, and behind it is a very human eye. And as someone who has studied eyes and orbits and craniofacial anatomy, throughout my entire academic career, I can tell you that's a human eye. Um, so so I only mentioned it because of that and this um, aspect of, of brain size growing larger, eyes growing larger in association with that because of pleiotropy. Um, but I was just like just bashed into oblivion by this dude that just really thought, and it's always dudes, you never see women trolling people. And I would love to do a study on that. Like... <laughs> What it is about about <laughs> men? It's just like I watched this great film last night called. Because they got to be right. They got to be right, and it's a dominance thing, I think. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, well, we're just uh, promoting various films. Uh, <laughs> the show called Tickled by a producer named da- David Ferrier out of New Zealand. Try, try to look at this tickling industry, this weird tickling industry, and it turned out being basically a troll bullying thing where this dude who was trying to portray themselves as a woman was just like bashing people with all this homophobic uh, rhetoric. And, mm-hmm. and, and it, it halfway through the film, spoiler alert, sorry, you <laughs> realized that it was, it was a dude, an insecure, nerdy dude who nobody liked the whole time, who I, I, I shouldn't spoil too much because this is actually a really good film and there are some twists and turns. But it's always dudes. Mm-hmm. It's always dudes that are trolling. When have you ever seen a woman 
trolling people. It doesn't happen. Never. Maybe it happens rarely, but never. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say never. I'm going to yeah, God as close to God as cl- yeah, as close to never as as statistically possible. Yeah, and why aren't <laughs> they in charge of everything? Because clearly they can get along with people. I mean, I, I grew up with five sisters uh, and a mom. I didn't have a dad most of the time when I was growing up, so I appreciate women and the way in which women do things maybe more than most, and perhaps I'm biased in that regard, but in the context of trolls, it's always dudes. Yeah. It's always dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fuck, I, I had I had guys. one for years, and, I, and he said he was a guy. Um, until I stopped, it when I stopped being nasty with him, and asked him, yeah. well, what's, you know, what's the deal? Why are you so pissed off all the time? And he actually admitted it. He goes, look, I'm overweight. I don't, I don't have a great job. I'm not real happy. It's like, well. Oh, wow. He's self-reflected? Yeah. That never happens. Good well, for you, man. Well, because he, he was a troll for like three years. And um, so he did that. And then he went like within another week, he was back to trolling me again. And so at that point, I realized, <laughs> yeah. At that point, I realized if I keep answering him, He's going to keep yeah. trolling me. So it took about two or three months. I didn't answer him, and I encouraged everybody that I knew that was helping me answer him not to answer him anymore, and he stopped. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, one of my favorite quotes is, the best way to win against toxic people is to not play the game. Yes, exactly. And which is why really I, applies to trolls. Yeah, which yeah. is why and, having... And it almost pisses them off more if you ignore yeah. them. Yeah. They're like, why aren't you engaging me? And, because uh, it's a it, because it's an endless you know it's it's an it's it's an endless loop it's a it's a bottomless pit so it's a um, time suck too you yeah could that be too time so much better in different ways I'd rather sit They're and stare at the it. wall than than you know engage with a troll <laughs> which is I'd rather have people jab me with hot spoons in the scrotum <laughs> than to <laughs> interact with trolls which is why I should send you one too I sell um, t-shirts and mugs that say do not engage on them for this this nice. is one of the main reasons oh yeah i remember we were lost at uh at arizona state campus trying to find our way back to the parking garage you told me about that i remember yeah. that now yeah i want one i gotta get one okay well i'll send you one i'll uh, send you one of my shirts too so it doesn't seem like an unfair transaction <laughs> We will. I, I, you really need, I, since you've expressed this to me, you really, I found um, uh, a lot of people that do produce controversial work or work in the UFO field or whatever, um, they're really huge fans of the, the, the do not engage philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. at a certain and point, you realize who you should engage with, even if they mm-hmm. don't agree with you. You know, right. exactly. you, you can you can discern those kind of people. It's like, OK, you know what? You've said something that makes sense and you're not being a dick. So right. let's talk about this. And the other thing is, if people are arguing with you and you think there's something there, take it offline. Take it off the public, whatever, because when people are fighting with you in the public, it's like the fight or flight yeah. is horrible. But if it's just one on one, that goes away. It does. And there's in academia, we deal with this all the time and. It's not just the UFO community. The UFO community, I will admit, has a lot of infighting. And there's a huge <laughs> division. And there's a huge rift. And that's healthy. That's very, very good. There needs to be a rift right now because yeah. there's a lot of wild speculation. Oh, there always has been. About. There always has been, sure. But I feel like there is a, a certain 
a constituency that is seeking something more. But anyway, in academia, we have right. the same thing. It sucks. And and what's funny is it's also the same, where the biggest uh, haters, the biggest trolls, only do it through email. Uh, most of them are too old to even know what social media is. But then you mm-hmm. confront them in person. They're like, oh, what are you doing? Like, we don't. We don't interact this way. We don't we don't fight each other in the open. We fight each other through email and through snide comments at committee meetings and stuff. And it's it's the same thing. I've I've been dealing with this in so many different capacities. But I, I've actually been really happy with the response to um the this this whole thing in the UFO community. Like I said, I'm not the first to do it. Others have been talking about this for a long time, but a little bit, but not it, not in the in the with the perspective of uh, current physics and and your your uh, specialty in in biology. Yeah, the multidisciplinary aspect. Like like George Knapp told me, he's like I'd seen this idea presented, but not in the context of of like yeah, exactly what you just said, biology and, and physics and astrobiology, linking these things together. Um, and and so I think there's there's something to offer there, but I also have gotten a little bit of resistance because there are people that are really tied to the extraterrestrial hypothesis and they build a career around it. And I'm mm-hmm. not, like I've said probably three times just in this interview, I, this isn't mutually exclusive. I'm not trying to take away from other models, but just trying to offer right. one that I feel explains a big part of it. So um, it, it shouldn't be threatening. There shouldn't necessarily be just outright bias or attacks because of that. But I also understand it having come from a place in paleoanthropology where that exists on a massive scale and has been for, for decades. So, yeah, I think we all benefit from just talking to each other uh, mm-hmm. harmoniously or at least with an open mind and moving forward collectively. Yeah. Uh, and dealing with people on an individual basis seems to help, um, calm, mm-hmm. I've calmed so many people down just by, it's like, what's the problem, dude? I can just send them a personal <laughs> message or an email. And they're <laughs> yeah. most of the time they're like, what, 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 why, why, why are you contacting me this way? Mm-hmm. It's like, Cause I don't want to yeah. fight with you anymore. What's the deal? Right. Right. And it's taken care hey. of in about five minutes. Yeah, usually. exactly. Uh, another short spoiler alert in case anybody wasn't already watching that tickled movie that I just mentioned. That's exactly how that ends. That's exactly how that ends is by just confronting the person who's trying to destroy you for whatever reason they have for whatever insecurity issue they're dealing with or, Mm -hmm them being overweight or, or bald or their penis is too small or their penis is too small because it's probably always that their penis is too small. <laughs> I guess if I had to, if I had to guess, I, I haven't done any data on that nor would I want to touch a bunch of trolls' penises, but I'm guessing that probably a big part of it. No, you can't have them self-report. That's not going to work. Okay. No, that's not going to work. <laughs> uh, back to the subject, I guess. Yes. yes. <laughs> what were we um, talking about? <laughs> we were talking about travel into the past, the reasons for it. Um, oh, we just finished with the eye shape thing, which I thought, yes. you, uh, thought was cool. Oh, the, the last little bit here 
which is the idea of interbreeding. And so mm. there's been arguments I've heard from many different people. It's like, look, if they're aliens, they can't breed with us. Well, then, you know, if, if you read uh, Dr. Master's book, yes, they can, because supposedly they're, they're the us. same species. Um, yeah. So, uh, so you know, what would it be just what people are saying? It's like, well, we're looking for better breeding stock or whatever. That's, that's what uh, Bud Hopkins' uh, um, abductees and a few others used to say. Um, you know, and th- under your, uh, your hypothesis, it's, it's, it's kind of supportable. Yeah, I mean, if if there is hybridization, if that is actually happening, then then by definition, our current definition and the definition that's existed since the 1700s, essentially, is that we are the same species because the biological species concept, and there are about seven or eight different species concepts because um, we can't do this with fossil hominins, but if two living concurrent uh, organisms can reproduce and produce viable offspring, then by the biological species definition, they are the same species. Um, and, and that's important. The, the classical example is the, the donkey and the horse. Mm-hmm. It makes a mule. The mule is infertile. Therefore, a donkey and a horse are a separate species. But if we are producing viable offspring with these aliens, then that means that we are technically the same species. And you're right. It's almost unfathomable. It's so improbable that you would have a separate evolutionary trajectory on a different planet result in something that could interbreed with us. We can't even reproduce with our closest living relative, the chimpanzee, who has only one chromosomal difference. We just diverged six million years ago. We can't make a baby with an aardvark. We can't make a baby with a parakeet or a tomato or a cantaloupe or a watermelon or an apple pie. As much as we try, we can't do it because we're not the same species. So if this is actually happening, then we have to acknowledge that they are us and we are them. And to me, that seems obvious. Um, But to take it a step further... What that also implies is that there may be a point, because this is something we argue about a lot in paleoanthropology, how far back into the past could we go and still reproduce with our past hominin ancestors? Obviously, we could go back 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. Uh, Our species designation is about 200,000 years ago, where we have a mental eminence, a chin, and a globular neurocranium, a round head. But those are just lines in a continuum. It's a morphological trait that we use to demarcate where we decide our species exist. But there, there's nothing about it. It's just we could pick anything to do that. Um, so at what point could we reproduce with Homo erectus? Clearly we could reproduce with the Neanderthals. Because it and it's happened. Because yeah. it happened. And it's only recently that we knew that. When I was going through grad school, it was thought that they were a completely different species, that there was no interbreeding. We found genes and long bones in a dry cave, and we were able to replicate that and, and see that we actually share a lot of DNA. I think uh, on average about 5% of our DNA, and out, outside of Africa at least, any population outside of Africa has about 5% DNA. There's more in some Southeast Asian countries. So if we can do that 
with something that looks so different than us, the Neanderthals, their big stupid brow ridges and their big weird heads and their primitive tools and their uh, giant penises, I assume, because they probably didn't troll each other, then we could probably (laughs) say that they are different enough that we shouldn't be able to interbreed. And a Chihuahua and a Great Dane. You look at those, you say, no, absolutely not. No way. And especially if you're looking at them in the fossil record, mm-hmm. you say, absolutely not. Those are two different things. But they could, and they could produce viable offspring. So, so that's why I bring up this biological species concept versus how we understand species in the past is because we can't know unless we had time travel technology. Then we could easily test that. Then we could go back and reproduce with or take sperm and egg from different points in time and see at what point we don't produce viable offspring. But I'm guessing that we could probably go back, and this is just me speculating at this point, I would guess probably at least 1.2 to maybe even 2 million years ago and still interbreed with Homo erectus and produce viable offspring. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at the future of that, if we're looking at these big-headed, big-eyed, small-faced, gray aliens who are doing the same thing to us that I would do to them, <laughs> then, yeah, maybe maybe we are able to do that. There, there's got to be an upper limit, you would think, uh, unless we do just homogenize our gene pool throughout the future. We're sampling so much from the past that it ends up in the future. But... Um, yeah, I mean, why why couldn't they? They look different than us. But again, the Neanderthals look different than us, and we could clearly reproduce with them. So, I think there's a lot going on there. And and if if again, if you do believe in hybridization, then you have to acknowledge, just based on the definition of species, that they are us. They are us, and again, most likely from the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you had one phrase in there. A search for, I think you said, novel gene variants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. I feel like I just talked a lot and um, that's okay. people are probably sick of hearing me talk. But So I'll keep this part short uh, in case your <laughs> listeners are starting to quit, space yeah, out. Yeah, quit worrying about that. It's fine. Like I said, if it's, <laughs> if it's uninteresting to me, I will change the subject or say something. All right. Well, yeah. that was a follow-up question, so I... Assume that means I'm okay to go. You're okay to go, go, go. As I'm okay to want. go. On novel gene um, variants, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's the thing is that if if we do continue the same trend, and, and, and what I try to do in the book, as I mentioned earlier in this interview, is draw from actual events in our past throughout the long history of hominin evolution on this planet. And one current trend is, at least in the last 500 years or so, is that we're homogenizing our gene pool. We're, we're starting to uh, essentially become one interbreeding population. Mm-hmm. You go back 500 years. And in fact, when I did my dissertation research, I would You go, mean all, the entire oh, world, all humans? The entire world, yeah. yeah. I, I would go to all of these different museums that had pre-colonial populations, because I don't care what their populations look like now. I cared what they looked like before Europeans came and started 
just being dicks to everybody and killing them and stealing their resources and interbreeding and the missionaries came and tell them the missionary position and interjected <laughs> their genes in these populations. That obviously messes with their skeletal anatomy. Yeah. And what I was looking at was their pre-colonial indigenous skeletal anatomy and how that exists in the context of human variation. So I would go to all of these different museums around the world and bust out my my measuring tools and take all of these measurements and then do these analyses. But since then, because of European colonialism, there's been this broad-based homogenization, this shift toward an amalgamation of all of the genes, obviously propellers and then jets has made that happen even faster. Yeah. So if that continues, we're going to suffer, you would assume, or you could project into the future, from a lot of the same problems that exist in isolated gene pools as a result of inbreeding, incest, essentially, where we become one incestuous human population existing on this island of Earth. Mm -hmm. And because we can't just go to Mars and be like, hey, can you guys give us some novel gene variants? We'll give you like 10 bucks, I swear. Good for it. <laughs> we, the only place you could possibly go is into the past where you sample those haplotypes, those haplogroups, that didn't make yeah, it. Yeah, that have gone extinct since then. That have gone extinct. And and yeah, that sucks for them because they didn't have offspring. They're not a part of the future, but they could be extremely valuable. And that also might help explain why some families are so plagued by this phenomenon, why they keep being visited over and over as, as mm, lineages, mm -hmm. as groups of people that are like, why won't they just leave us alone? Maybe they have genes that are really valuable because they're novel gene variants to those future human populations. So, and, and we do this, as I point out in the book, we do this now in conservation efforts. Right. When we have a really isolated gene pool, we look all throughout the world, especially in zoos, they do this all the time, to try to find different uh, unrelated groups with alleles that aren't identical by descent where they can bring those alleles, those gene variants, into this other population to diversify their genome. So it's it's very possible that they're doing the same thing as our distant future descendants in order to alleviate certain problems they have because of this current modern trend toward genetic homogenization. But don't you think, and this is the, here's the troll argument, <laughs> Don't you think there, there, that uh, genetic manipulation might be at a point in the future where they would need to do that? Yeah. Oh, that's really funny you bring that up. And, and I think there's a difference between trolls and just having a conversation. Like I know. I'm just joking. It. Yeah, you didn't say it with, like, the aggression. And, and you said it in a personal context, as we just decided they don't do that. Yeah. Um, it's always <laughs> through the Internet. At two o'clock in the morning with their tiny little penis sticking out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. Um, why would they need to do that? But what's interesting is there are a couple, and I can't cite any specifically, but there are a couple of abduction reports where they, um, they, they mention specifically that scenario where we had messed with our genes. It, it, it's kind of like a Galatica situation where they were trying to, create something or fix something and then it all just went wrong Where oh so you have to you have to you have to go back you have to go like back 10 steps before you made the mistake 
or yeah, whatever kind it is. of. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and who knows if that's true? This is just no, I'm, but it's, I'm it's an answer from a couple of reports, but it's something that that could potentially make sense in this context. Is if if they thought they were doing something right with with all of the CRISPR stuff with the gene splicing that we're doing now, if we got something wrong that could have vast ramifications for the future of our genome and that we might not realize until 500 years, a thousand years into the future. Um, the, the Neanderthal genome in fact is, um, associated with a lot of male infertility. Those that had, uh, more Neanderthal traits on their X chromosome had higher rates of male infertility. So there are things that we can do just from, crossing or interbreeding or trying to manipulate genes that could potentially be negative that we would have to fix a problem we thought we were solving, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right, exactly. Um, I've taken a lot of your time, but I have one more question, I think, maybe one more. How do you survive in academia writing about this crazy stuff? What do your colleagues think of it? Which ones? Uh, The ones that don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been interesting actually because um I had no idea going into this what the response would be. You I like others can't predict the future. Mm-hmm. And I've told you that three or four times tonight that uh, I try to be cautious of making any sort of statements about future outcomes. So yeah, I thought about publishing under a pseudonym for a while. I thought about um, many different potential outcomes. And, and and honestly, what convinced me that I should do it no matter what was that it needs to be something that we talk about. And the stigma that exists is, is manufactured. It's fake. Mm-hmm. We've been forced to think that we shouldn't talk about this because of things that go back to the 1950s and 1960s. And and we're living in this era now where we shouldn't still care what cultural hangovers existed from that time because of Project Grudge and, and Project Blue Book and, and all of the... The, the efforts to keep people from talking yeah, about Condon these committee, and all I, that stuff, yeah. Yeah, and, and once you realize that that was purposeful, and you read between the lines and realize that that was purposeful because there was something happening and there is something happening, then it just becomes stupid. <laughs> and you think, well, why should I not talk about this because of something that was put in place in the 1950s and 60s that's carried on into the future and, like I said previously, because it's our job. It is our job to ask questions. And no matter how controversial those are, it's scientists that should be doing this. And the whole reason tenure exists is so that we can feel comfortable being somewhat controversial mm-hmm. and addressing things that aren't in the mainstream and that maybe are a little bit outside of the box. So. I got tenure. I, I've been promoted to full professor, and I have a long track record of respectable scientific inquiry and publication where I got to the point where I, I gave no fucks about that. <laughs> I felt that it was time 
to just talk about this. And, and I feel like it's such an important question that we should all be talking about it. And yeah, if I get pushed back, fine. And to answer your question specifically, I haven't. Oh, I've that's been great. tremendously supported by my, my colleagues here on campus, um, my, my peers in, in various academic fields. Um, obviously, I can't get everything right, especially when I talk about things outside of anthropology that aren't my primary field. Um, but the response from people at Los Alamos and SpaceX and people who claim to have worked for CIA, FBI, different government agencies have always been, keep going. You're, you're on the right track. This is right. Or this is close. Um, it's, it's been tremendously positive and tremendously encouraging and it could all be bullshit. I could be entirely wrong. Uh, and I'm perfectly willing to be the first to admit that. But uh, until we're all willing to face our demons and take on the potential trolls, then we're we're not going to get anywhere as as a species, as humanity in a social intellectual context. So I I decided it was worth just throwing caution to the wind and <laughs> trying to start a conversation, uh, regardless. Well, that's why I have you on the show. That's why I, I kept bugging you at uh, UFO Congress um, to talk to me and come on the show because in the last year or two, uh, academics have become less t- uh, reticent to talk about their interest and what they, you know, and and bringing whatever their expertise is to bear on the problem. And um, that's what that's why I wanted to have you on. So thanks very much. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, and and I think it's actually nice too. Um, after I published the book and, and started talking about this more, you, you, you see what, and not, not because of, a, a, of this book or anything, I'm not trying to say that, it's just a, a coincidence, but you, you're seeing more discussion about this in the mainstream. You're seeing, um, you know, there's always been the wacko shows, but there's actual like uh, mm-hmm. mainstream news outlets talking about it and different yep. um I don't know. It, it, disclosure, I guess, is is the word I'm looking for. It seems like there's disclosure happening, and that's so good to see. And I think, um, I think at least from a scientific standpoint, for us scientists, it'll take full on disclosure before we're really willing to say, "Yeah, let's let's investigate this. This is a real thing." Yeah. Um, but I I think we should all be doing that regardless. Um, but I think. I, I understand it, and a lot of people don't have tenure, and a lot of people are interested in it. And it was so great mm-hmm. being at the the Phoenix Conference, the International UFO Congress, to see those researchers, other PhDs who were there to learn about it, to study it. They're interested in it. But until we have full-on disclosure, there's not going to be this wave. I feel like it's sitting there, though. I feel like there's just – it's like that jack-in-the-box, you know, where you're – you're twisting it, you're turning that crank, yeah. and then you're like, oh, it's going to pop, it's going to pop, and you're going to shit your pants when it does, but you know it's going to happen, and then yeah. it pops. I feel like we're right there. I feel like it's just about to pop, and, and yeah. there's going to be this flood of, of other academics coming in to, that's to really what, figure to me, that's out. Yeah, to me, that's what, I, I don't like the term disclosure because it's been bastardized and balderized and everything into uh-huh. something where, my idea when people start talking about it, um, my first comment is, you know what disclosure is to me, at least the way that UFO people 
um, elucidate it in public is that um, I'm going to believe what you say only if you tell me exactly what I want to hear and um, <laughs> and and it's uh, well, and it, well it's like asking the parent that always lies to you to tell me the truth exactly this exactly right this one time in the way that I want to hear it <laughs> that I already have a predetermined but the uh, way you just des- awesome. yeah the way you describe it is more like a disclosure to me where there's almost a groundswell of people that are thoughtful about things or careful about what they say, yet very interested in this and just saying, look, we really have to take a look, a look at this. And I think to me, that's the, that's like the sneaker wave disclosure, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, that's perfect. You're right. Uh, and, and that's why I was hesitant to even use that term because you're right. Disclosure now feels, it, it, it just, yeah, it's been hijacked. It, it is. Yeah. It it has kind of yeah, but you're right. There's this the sneaker wave. There's the, <laughs> this there's people lying in wait to really just pounce on this. But it there has to be a green light, and that green light has to come from those who have not right. only been hiding this for so long, but have been demonizing it and stigmatizing it for so long. Mm-hmm. And and I I hope they're gonna do that soon because it needs to be done. There needs to be. Uh, a conversation about this. And I do feel like we're moving toward that. Um, oh, yeah. There's a little, there's a news story on it every day. Navy admits this. Yeah. Air Force says this. You know, someone's, you know, this senator says, why, why have we been covering this up? That was laughable 20 or 10 years, or even maybe exactly. even five years ago. And it's not yeah. anymore. And that's yeah. really encouraging. So, you know, to me, it that's, is. to me, that's a disclosure, whatever world. Um, let's not be so right. scared of it and let's have the people that have been scared to talk, like you said, talk about what they've been thinking about. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. why I've pursued all the academics at the conference. I, just to say, look, this is, this is crazy, but it's not as crazy as you think it is, especially if you approach it from your discipline and look at mm-hmm. it from your discipline. And that, that's, um, that's what you're doing, which is why I really appreciate your book. Yeah. No, we can learn a lot from working together and by having open dialogue about it. And I hope that continues. Yeah. What song do you want to hear? Oh, also, thank you very much, Dr. <laughs> I totally Michael. I forgot to think about that. <laughs> uh, uh, Purple Rain. Really? Is that the one you want? Yeah. Okay. I'll play it. <laughs> no, I, I will. Just That's the first song that came to my head. Well, then you, that's probably you, the you one can, you should that I should put on there. It's probably the one i don't think it's relevant to anything we talked about tonight perfect it just it it feels right i'm i'm sticking by it okay purple rain all right i'll play all right right. thanks very much (laughs) thank you it's great talking to you tonight I never meant to call you when you're playing. I never meant to call you when you're playing. 